Content warning. In this podcast, we will be discussing violence and trauma, including racism, climate change, eugenics, slavery, and environmental injustice. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crow Talk, the monthly podcast dedicated to revolutionary socialism, decolonization, and abolition. The show is hosted by members of Coalition to Reorganize Workers, Crow, an anti-fascist working class organization. In this episode of Crow Talk, Clay and I speak to two special guests about colonialism, socialism, and ecology. First is Noemi, creator and admin of Hot Kami and Marxism 101 correspondent for The Forge News. Myself and other indigenous activists, we believe that our people purposely lived simply with the goal of not marring and exploiting the land, however, still had very sophisticated views and very complex ways of relating to the environment just because the modern scientific method was not used doesn't mean that our peoples were not scientific people. Also joining us is Comrade Scott, an environmental scientist working in the northeastern U.S. In coastal Georgia, they have a huge problem with um, the pig farms there because they're so concentrated. They form these uh, coastal lagoons of pig waste that uh, actually build up gas bubbles and can explode and rain uh, literal pig waste basically on the area around it, spreading disease. Thank you both for being here. Happy to be here. Thank you. So I want to start by asking, what were some of the perspectives of humanity's relationship to nature on Turtle Island prior to European invasion? I can speak a little on this. In the Ho-Chunk Nation, which is the Native American nation that I'm a part of, I was brought up with a few key pieces of knowledge, one being that we are all related, including the animals and people of all races. Uh, Animals are my siblings and cousins. We are all related also implies the theory of evolution. And the second thing that I was taught, very similar to the first, is that we all depend on each other which is another way of explaining ecosystems. No matter how small, each living thing matters to another form of life. And I will add that just because a form of life is not important to humans doesn't mean it's not important at all. And this non-hierarchical relationship with the land is one of the few cultural ties between many diverse and varied Native North American groups. One thing we all had in common is this kind of philosophy. It, it sounds like that that sort of ties into uh, a little bit of what we were talking about in, in the last episode, where the relationship that indigenous peoples have with the land and nature gives a, a method of uncovering truths that maybe Europeans wouldn't recognize as truth or as truth-seeking, but nevertheless uh, results in a direct line to noticing things like migration patterns and different different behaviors within uh, species or different um, plants that can offer healing properties or um, different means of exploring the uh, sacred. Would you say that's that's correct? 
Yes, I would say that uh, myself and other indigenous activists, we believe that our people purposely lived simply with the goal of not marring and exploiting the land, however, still had very sophisticated views and very complex ways of relating to the environment just because the modern scientific method was not used doesn't mean that our peoples were not scientific people. How was European understanding of of their relationship to nature different from various indigenous peoples? Europeans like Benjamin Franklin and his predecessors viewed nature as an afterthought, a thing to be dealt with, to be conquered, paved over, or pushed aside to make way for their idea of progress. Prosperity in cooperation with nature wasn't enough for them. Like they extracted beneficial values from religion to benefit capitalism, settlers also extracted beneficial resources from the land. Settlers and the capitalism they developed is inherently exploitative. It's not in line with what indigenous peoples believed, which was non-hierarchical. Definitely, uh, this definitely ties into a lot of the notions of um, nature and uh, humanity somehow as being uh, separate in the first place, uh, even the very roots of those as being like different linguistic terms and like European languages. I agree with that. Yes, I can corroborate that because growing up in Ho-Chunk culture, it was implied that the word land, as we used it in English, included humans and animals and water. It, it wasn't literal, just the earth as many people in the U.S. use it. Uh, yeah, I definitely feel like that's um, kind of ties into a big problem we're having now uh, in the modern world, kind of as an exploitative uh, opinion towards nature. Uh, we view it inherently in terms of like resources, and even a lot of times when we view it just, uh, I guess, for like tourist perspectives, we view it from like aesthetic value instead of having some kind of intrinsic value of itself, which ties into uh, what I was commenting on earlier, where it's, it's effectively... Um, if you want to get down to it, very difficult to differentiate um, human beings from uh, nature. We we are part of this system. The, every single atom and molecule in your body over the course of your life is replaced by ones you absorb from your environment. So it's it's kind of like a strange pretense to even view ourselves as outside of this system. Um, it leads towards behaviors that uh, ultimately damage the systems we rely on uh, for our everyday survival because it's easy to view them as somehow lesser or almost like a machine that you can just perform actions on and receive resources. I think that's excellent, Scott. I agree. Uh, there are some very, very practical problems with humanity versus nature. One of the main ones being that nature's weather systems can and will eliminate humans as a result of our irresponsibility. And having a relationship with nature in the form of rivalry or domination just results in chaos like climate change. So we have to accept that humans are nature, just as Scott was saying. Humans are the earth and vice versa. And to live at odds with the earth is to live at odds with ourself. And it's fruitless to believe that we can truly control the land for our human benefit. We only destroy it. The evidence is everywhere. How and when was whiteness developed as a concept and how does it relate to um, this humanity versus nature idea? The idea of whiteness began to form circa the Crusades periods of the Middle Ages, and it fully formed in the 
colonial New World era, so whiteness was developed as a political identity designed to create a ruling class of people over other humans. And to do this, the white group had to define and justify categories of subclasses within humans. It's commonly known that chattel slavery depended on the relegation of indigenous African peoples to the status of beast. This idea of a lesser, uncomprehending being incapable of reason was the defense for such brutal methods used to control slaves. What is less discussed is the creation of the status of beast. For some humans to be considered beast, the category of beast had to be brought to this land. So it's the idea that animals are not our brethren, but our chattel to own, to exploit, torture, and slaughter as we see fit. Settlers embedded this idea about animals into their religion, their science, and their philosophies. So when they wanted to commit genocide against indigenous North Americans and indigenous Africans, it was as simple as saying, these are beasts we're dealing with. And it even implies that they are doing us a favor by caring for us the way a white farmer cares for his stock. But it's, it's all a myth. The wholesome white farmer, the inferiority of animals, and the subhumanness of black and indigenous peoples. However, it all had to be constructed in order to build a system of control for whites to steal wages, to exploit land, and to profit across generations. It's almost... Uh surreal when you see some of these uh, schemas for uh, like classifications of different ideas of race. I know in um, uh, colonial Brazil, I think there was like 64 different uh, like categories, uh, like a tier list of different ideas of like races based on like admixtures of different peoples. It's really quite quite strange to look at it. It, It's like overwhelming and how like surreal uh, the thought process that went into it is. So how, how has your understanding of ecology evolved and what motivated you to be critical of your previous perspectives? Um, starting from when I was a young child, I learned indigenous values of cooperation with the land and I understood that I am part of the land. So this was all alongside lessons from capitalism, that the land is ours to exploit as we wish that ownership is a legitimate state uh, and that endless expansion is great and possible. So my grandmother, who is from Cebu, found it very important to show me where she came from and to give me exposure to a different way of life and to poverty, both in the United States and in the Philippine Islands. Admittedly, her reasoning was uh, one of maybe not benevolence, but I did learn very valuable lessons. Uh, In a rural mountainous area of the Philippines, we were driving through and we stopped our van to wait for a truck to finish loading its ware. And from on top of the vehicle, I saw a pipe sticking straight out of it vertically and then horizontally and vertically again down into the ground like a child's drawing. It was very straightforward what was going on. And the truck said, Evian with the French Alps logo, and they were presumably pumping water from a spring. However, the ground was completely paved over with gray concrete, so I couldn't see the water. And this dusty truck and the gray pipes in concrete were so 
stark and sudden against the lush green forest plants. So as we drove on, I I watched for miles, and there was no alternative access to this particular water source. The area was not densely populated, but there were people there. The people from the mountains, as they're called, are really just the indigenous people who resisted colonization. And this Evian truck is an example of how capitalist ecological exploitation takes a resource from people who would otherwise protect and care for it because those people have nothing else. They would die or be forced to move to the cities where they'd be houseless. And the Philippine islands don't have welfare programs. So I had my moments where I did not take running water for granted. I didn't take unpolluted air or a peaceful environment for granted. Um, My U.S. American middle class views were challenged by these alternative experiences that I had, which I later discovered is a part of double consciousness as defined by Dubois. So I see this struggle more as a blessing than a curse for ultimately I was able to work through the contradictions in my ecological beliefs and I settled upon what I think are the most revolutionary and liberating views available to me. It took work, but my upbringing helped the process along. And I hope to share as much as I can so others can feel that they've lived through it, too. Thank you so much for for sharing that. Wow, that was beautiful. I had a largely uh, uh, middle class upbringing. Also, it's very uh, material focused, kind of detached from um, a lot of the processes that go on around you every day as far as like the natural world. Um, and I suppose in college, um, coming to study uh, things like organic chemistry and biology, um, closer, uh, really started to um, instill in me a perspective that where it becomes very difficult to differentiate um, the individual from the whole in terms of the world, um, just studying going from uh, tissues to organs to organ systems to organism to population to biosphere. Um, you start to realize that simply because conscious thought as we know it exists at the individual level uh, we, we prioritize it as if it's some sort of like only dimension of reality and through understanding uh, physical reality better came to realize that just because my consciousness exists at one level of this uh, organization it doesn't mean that these fast interconnected processes aren't occurring every second of every day um, it, it definitely made uh, ecology very personal and at the same time it, it i guess if it makes sense it sort of like eroded that sense of uh, personal in the first place and made it um, like a holistic view towards the world the neoliberal system sort of pushes this individualistic route to solutions to problems like climate change um, and and any social problems really. But um, you know things things like make sure you uh, reduce, reuse, recycle, which which are are good things to do. But if we don't address, you know, the overarching uh, systems of exploitation and production and the superstructure that reinforces that, we're not really going to be able to tackle these issues. What was production like in Europe during this time? Uh, During this time period, this was uh, about the golden age of mercantilism in Europe, which kind of um, started growing in about the 1500s. This also later uh, metastasized, I guess you could say, uh, into like a full-blown capitalism, but uh, it was kind of a focus on repurposing entire national economies 
towards profitable exports, basically comparatively to your competitors. Uh, trade as an idea had moved towards the notion of being purely competitive versus like a hybrid competitive cooperative function. Um, you had the rise of large autocratic states in Western and Central Europe. Uh, they were starting to focus on precious metals as the only real measure of wealth. Um, they began to focus on finished goods as opposed to raw resources, which inherently required more and more resources, um, more sophisticated reliance on labor. And at the same time, um, you had a direct focus on controlling the wages of working classes so as to only allow them to, and I, I saw this multiple times in a lot of different documents, uh, the exact words were existing on the fringes of subsistence, basically just being allowed to survive while still having to work. Um, this was different from uh, previously where people were more focused on farming for themselves and their community. Uh, this allowed these uh, increasingly autocratic states to build up their coffers, uh, largely focused on both direct and indirect warfare with their competitors. Increasingly, the entire purpose of the economy became in the service and benefit of the state structure. And uh, these policies directly encouraged uh, monopolizing resources outside of the current domain that these European countries held. A lot of the uh, gold and silver mines in Europe at the time were starting to run out of resources, which encouraged uh, war and expansion. And uh, this coincided with discovery of, uh, as we call now, uh, the new world, quote unquote, kind of followed from there. So what were some of the challenges they faced in the new world? And how did they cope before assistance from indigenous peoples? As would be, I think, obvious to any of us now that uh, if we stop and really think about it, but uh, agricultural societies take generations upon generations to build, to cultivate the land, um, and to create systems that can support them. A lot of uh, European colonists simply had an assumption that in these new areas, if they just put in a little bit of labor within a few years, they could recreate fields they were used to in Europe that were the process of thousands of years of direct human intervention, um, which obviously didn't really pan out. So uh, starvation was pretty rampant. And um, although diseases definitely uh, cut against indigenous populations significantly more, uh, Europeans also suffered from diseases which were exacerbated uh, by the starvation that they were suffering from. Um, I'm I'm personally mostly familiar with the uh, history of the Northeast um, being originally from here and uh, doing a lot of the um, a lot of my reading recently about the region um, in in New England in particular uh, the indigenous peoples had been managing the land for centuries to uh, produce large open spaces which encouraged the growth of populations of their preferred game um, in order to uh, subsist off of and to add in addition to their agriculture. Uh, Europeans didn't even recognize these land management systems as being a form of agriculture, which they were, but they were uh, completely used to their own forms. So they didn't even really recognize what they were seeing around them. And as disease began to ravage the local communities over the course of, in some places, as little as a decade, two decades, you saw as much as 90% even total population collapse in indigenous communities. And the land management obviously stopped. And um, the land did what it does and the forest started retaking the lands and what you saw was uh, the european settlers suddenly saw the woods becoming denser and darker with less game uh, they didn't understand what was happening uh, there was all sorts of hysteria and paranoia that's why you started to see focus on witches and all sorts of um you know strange phenomenon that they were blaming for what was happening because they didn't understand the natural systems that were occurring and um, i'm also aware uh, in the American South, a similar process happened um, when 
the Spanish uh, in the south had introduced um, a whole host of new diseases that traveled through pre-existing trade networks and caused uh, collapses of local indigenous communities and trading centers. And you saw a complete ecological cascade as land management techniques were abandoned within several decades. You had also the addition of feral pigs from Europeans and explosions in deer that used to be contained. And you basically had a free-for-all for different ecological regimes trying to retake the land after the uh, land management by the indigenous populations had stopped. Whenever I hear these stories of the hubris of Europeans, I can't help but believe that many Native American nations had taken pity upon them when they assisted them, which makes it all the more frustrating to also know about all the methods of genocide that they received in response. I agree with that sentiment. What sorts of invasive plants and animal species did the Europeans bring with them? One, one that uh, always stuck out to me was uh, horses, which um, really was an effective reintroduction. Uh, horses actually originally evolved in North America, and they, they crossed the uh, Bering Strait into the Eurasian landmass, um, just like when humans kind of came the other direction. Uh, the original, uh, I believe, Clovis cultures, peoples, uh, I know we've found artifacts of them, I believe, in uh, Boulder, Colorado, where they'd found basically blades used for butchering meat that still had um, genetic material from horses on it. Um, they had originally been wiped out, but they were uh, reintroduced, which enabled entirely new uh, lifestyles for some indigenous peoples. Uh, There's also the introduction of cattle and sheep, which necessitated clear cutting of land. Uh, they were used to and thrived in larger open fields that were in Europe. Uh, this also formed a direct avenue for competition between local predators and the uh, European colonists as the uh, for the predators, these animals are pretty easy pickings. They were not exactly uh, wily or hard to find like a lot of the uh, native animals. Uh, arguably, some of the worst that were brought in, of course, were pigs and domesticated cats. Um, pigs tend to root uh, into the ground as they feed, which uh, completely is just destructive for ground-clicking plants, uh, plants with shallow roots and the organisms that rely on them. And cats uh, add intense pressure to small fauna, uh, birds, rodents, um, something that they just weren't used to having to deal with. Uh, and also for plants, uh, Europeans brought with them wheat, rye, coconut, citrus, and uh, palm oil plants, which uh, a lot of those I'm sure are familiar with us now for being involved with intensive agricultural processes that uh, cause a lot of ecological problems. Sometimes when I'm working on different projects, people describe the type of research that they're doing to try to plant native species. And just from the difficulty of their research, I can see the chaos that uh, Scott is describing. Like, I just have an idea that the information's not as readily available as it should be. Oh, uh, definitely. A lot of this, um, I'm not a biologist or anything, but a lot of this, my understanding, is uh, derived from genetic data. It's, it's kind of like something people don't really, didn't really keep track of 100%. Um, I found just interesting, especially like I was saying about horses, kind of how roundabout that was for them to sort of return in a way to the continent that birthed them. But the sort of like transfer of genetic data, I guess you could call it, um, reintroduction of these organisms, something of that scale. I, I'm not familiar with anything like that happening in history. What about European lifestyles made them so prone to disease? Because when you read historical accounts, there's Europeans sort of are, are described as like 
being kind of smelly and not really, you know, is there any truth to that? Uh, I know that I've read in my at least in, uh, college courses and books like that. It was interesting to read different uh, people's commenting on that with the basically unwashed barbarian kind of kind of vibe when they interact with the Europeans. Um, I know the uh, European lifestyle involved a lot of um, denser settlements, which led to really high frequencies of exposure to people outside of your um, immediate community and like uh, family unit. They also have a long history of living in close proximity to domestic animals uh, like cows, sheep, geese, pigs, chicken. Um, that actually led to there's uh, some uh, genetic research showed um, it was likely that Europeans had a really high uh, proportion of antigens in their bloodstream, specifically because they were constantly exposed to diseases that could be transmitted between those um, due to their close proximity to all of these animals. Um, and European, and I, and I use sanitary uh, in quotations here, but uh, sanitary habits in cities often involve just dumping trash in the streets, burning your waste, um, dumping waste into local water bodies, and especially um, when they colonized the, uh, and I, again, I use quotations here, the New World, um, this led to problems as they didn't have a history with these water bodies, they didn't know their behaviors, so oftentimes they would just dump waste into waters that would seasonally turn into lagoons and suddenly they were surrounded by stagnant waters the water levels could rise and you suddenly have uh, unsafe waters basically like lapping up around your ankles and what you uh, thought was the outskirts of your town um, i believe there's some uh, research into the roanoke colony that may have been what actually caused the the collapse was uh, the basically the their mistreatment of the water resources there with their waste i mean basically led to the colony being just not sustainable uh let's move on to imperialism because uh it's something that the american system became really efficient at what is imperialism and what are some of the ways that it is um inflicted upon the world and then what have been its socio-ecological impacts so imperialism is basically the hierarchy among nations or group of, groups of people. It's what allows for colonization to happen. The socio-ecological impacts of imperialism include generational poverty of the peoples who had been dominated in order to gain power for that imperialist force. As they colonize the country, gain influence, change the culture and religion, and economic systems of the peoples who were there before. Uh, the people who were there before become a subclass. And we can see, for example, with indigenous Africans who are forced to come to the new world and be slaves. Now we have people of the African diaspora are affected with generational poverty and because of the inherent racism of the United States of America, they are denied reparations, they are denied back pay for all the wages that were stolen from the slaves by the imperialist force, this new force of the United States. The same sort of exploitative uh, domineering mindset was applied to the landscape, uh, just as it was applied to the people. Um, these places that were colonized and controlled were simply viewed as almost like a piggy bank to be taken from as needed a lot of the time people people think of imperialism as like 
direct colonization or you know war but imperialism can can also be you know exploiting the labor of a nation um to to extract a resource and then to refine it and sell it back to them as a commodity at prices that that these these workers can't can't even afford it can it can also be um creating dependency like um a lot of places where cash cropping was used the soil has been so heavily damaged that the people can't grow their own sustenance anymore so what ends up happening is they have to import foods from the nations that that did this this damage in in uh, the first place so um do either of you have uh recommended reading on any of these topics so far changes in the land by uh william cronon c-r-o-n-o-n uh, it's a really interesting insight into the like ecological regime changes that occurred um as the colonists reached and started forming uh colonies um, and how the land changed and nature reacted to the uh, transitions in the indigenous communities and the arrival of uh, the colonists. A lot of the times we see the, the human stories removed from uh, what was happening with the land. And it was just, I found it extremely interesting. They go through uh, fossilized pollen counts, um, court documents. Uh, they go through like anthropological digs showing like what people consumed, how they consumed them. Uh, it, it was just very very interesting it shows the impact that we have on the land around us and how reliant we are on it i would recommend reading by leslie marmon silko s-i-l-k-o any of her work she basically shares her indigenous outlooks with the reader and it's also very enlightening for indigenous peoples to feel more connected and people who want to decolonize. I really recommend her work. And I also recommend the book Empire of Care. It describes some of those interesting, subtle, unexpected methods of imperialism like you were talking about, Jose. We'll definitely uh, check these out, and if if we can provide them, we'll we'll add them to our our uh, library. How did industrialization affect land use, expansionism, and working conditions? Uh, one of the earliest and uh, most significant impacts on land use was, uh, again, I'm coming from a, a northeastern perspective, uh, was the repurposing of the river systems in the northeast. Uh, we have a very rocky terrain and a high humidity which leads to a high amount of precipitation and the proximity between the mountains and the coast. Uh, the colonists found themselves it encouraged a mass development of uh, hydropowered mills and early factories along these rivers, um, which this brought with it a necessity to control these rivers and creeks through a system of locks and canals. Uh, many of these uh, still exist. Um, I, I pass by some every day. Uh, these, this redirection of naturally flowing waters uh, impact the natural landscape um, that naturally occurs over the lifespan of a river. These, these are systems that have like an ebb and a flow, almost like a breathing in and breathing out over the span of centuries and thousands of years. Um, the advent of types of machinery that this kind of early industrialization made possible, it only led to more expansion. You had revolutions like railroads and steam vessels, which enabled transportation over larger distances in a manner that was safer, faster, and uh, more reliable. 
and uh, the attitudes towards the balance between uh, workers and owners. It was, this was already coming from the standpoint, um, as I discussed earlier, from um, mercantilism, where, again, I used the, uh, the quote I found of existing on the fringes of subsistence, uh, how workers were basically paid. Um, this led to an increase in the ratio of the population involved with this manufacturing, which put further pressure on uh, the worker balance downwards. And um, as these people, more and more of them were wrapped up in manufacturing and support industries compared to food production, um, they basically became more and more uh, subject to control uh, by their, the owners of these facilities. They no longer were growing food for themselves. Uh, I would really recommend uh, another note. If, if anyone hasn't read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, I believe it's, it's public domain now. It's, it's a really good insight into um, kind of what people were eating back then, uh, what they were exposed to on a daily basis as far as food, because they were no longer growing food for themselves or their communities. I read The Jungle, or tried to when I was younger, and I remember my teacher had taught us that that was a book about food safety, but I think I absorbed some of the workers' rights stuff from it, too, just on the low. <laughs> Heck yeah. Yeah. So, uh, when did climate change science first get officially introduced, and in what context? Um, people, I, People's worldwide have always had a, a fairly basic but um, well-founded well understandings of local climate and impacts on the world around them. Um, the examples would be uh, that I've, I was able to find, um, uh, apologies if I, I don't pronounce this correctly, but I know Shen Kuo, uh, an 11th century Chinese scientist, he, uh, I was reading about, uh, he discovered fossilized bamboo in regions that uh, were too dry for uh, his time for the cultivation of uh, bamboo in, in China. And he, uh, he inferred the climate changes over time uh, which, of course, is, you know, correct. Um, Aristotle's pupil, uh, Theophrastus, he noted that ponds, which had the forests removed around them, uh, they were less likely to freeze during the winter. And uh, he had hypothesized it was due to exposure from the sun, which, um, again, is uh, correct. Uh, people have been forming evidence-based perspectives on the world around them um, throughout history. It's, it's really where uh, science derives from. These, this, it wasn't you know, like these, these kind of ways of thinking just like popped into being in like the 1800s. Um, the more modern advent of climate science grew out of uh, other disciplines like geology, uh, physics, and chemistry. Uh, geologists, for instance, noted erratic boulders left behind by retreating glaciers, which could really only happen if uh, something had caused the glaciers to shrink in the first place, which implies climate change. Uh, early chemists observed the earth was far warmer than it should be in a vacuum which kind of uh, led to the development of atmospheric chemistry. Um, and for instance, uh, Eunice Foote in the 1850s, like over 150 years ago, um, she had, had already published uh, studies basically showing sunlight's ability to heat a closed system was greater than a system that had higher carbon dioxide concentrations. So this isn't even like something uh, revolutionary. This is the 1850s she, she published on this. And I thought it was kind of funny, a footnote, um, Kropotkin even uh, wrote about how uh, Siberian glaciers were shrinking uh, following the Industrial Revolution, which I thought was uh, kind of neat. Wow. So how did the capitalists uh, react to such findings? Um, <laughs> they reacted as basically they always did. Uh, anything that can be directed towards increased profitability and competitive edge is taken to heart, and anything that can't is kind of just background noise at best. <laughs> 
So how did industrialization affect the production and consumption of consumer goods? You know, we live in a nation where 90% of adult Americans have measurable concentrations of plastic compounds in their blood. Um, our society and economy has become like completely inured to the like, it's honestly mind blowing volume and density and spread of material goods we are exposed to and open to acquire, consume and throw away just on a daily basis. You know, at, at no point in history has any society had this much exposure to like just a overwhelming economy of material goods. I mean, just think of how many individual manufactured parts and pieces and panels and sheets and bags there are in your average roadside gas station mini mart, for example. Every single item on those shelves comes from somewhere, likely a lot of somewheres on multiple different continents. And every single one of those components had to be built, grown, shipped, packed, stocked, cleaned, tested, serviced, and all that likely po powered by uh, fossil fuels. That isn't even going into the next logical step of like it has to wind up somewhere and be processed somewhere too. So how is Marxist ecology different from liberal ecology and indigenous ecology? Well, the differences can probably be exposed in the goals of each one. Indigenous ecology traditionally before colonization was included a goal of harmony and avoiding exploitation, avoiding hierarchy. I think that any future Marxist or communist ecological philosophy must include that indigenous line of thought. Um, although the line of thought around industrialization may include some inherent exploitation within Marxist thoughts, I believe that that has the potential to change. Uh, when it comes to liberal ecology, liberals function within capitalism. And so there is still going to be a lot of exploitation taken for granted. Marxist and indigenous ecology are different. They don't always have to be, but both of those are very different from liberal ecology. What are some examples of environmental injustice? I mentioned an example earlier when it came to water exploitation in the Philippine islands where American and European companies claim resources and pump them dry despite the very real groups of indigenous people who rely on those resources. And there's another well-known example here in the United States in Flint, Michigan, because the people of Flint who are affected by poisoned water are low income and primarily black. They received lower priority in the affairs of the city. So thanks to racism, the pleas of the victims have been ignored. Even national outcry is not enough in a nation that is essentially racist and essentially capitalist. And a lack of potable water also affects most reservations where Native Americans live. So we can say that env environmental racism is a tool of genocide. How how did you come to communism, and how does that journey relate to your journey in decolonization? The way that I came to communism was through the route of gender inequality and through colonization and trying to understand imperialism. I 
was lacking in representation as a person who, at the time when I was younger, I identified as Filipino-American. I am also Black. I am also Ho-Chunk. I didn't know as much about those parts of my identity as I did about being Filipino. Still, even then, I couldn't find much media uh, to engage with, books, and films about Filipinos. Like, my schoolmates didn't know where the Philippine Islands were when I would talk about it. So um, the next best thing that I had was to read about Chinese Americans. I understood their philosophies and what they were going through because the Chinese empire had colonized the Philippines centuries and centuries ago. And so a lot of those ideas remain, a lot of Confucian ideas. So when I was reading about... Chinese Americans and their relatives who had come to the United States because of the revolution. I was reading about what was going on and I became more curious about the revolution itself. So I started studying that and I learned about gender inequality in China that helped me put into context gender inequality in my own life and here in the United States in general. I wanted to know why China had a revolution to destroy a lot of old harmful ideas that still existed in the Philippine Islands post-revolution. I wanted to know why was it different? Why could I relate to Chinese culture so much? Um, but why did my people feel so distant from me in so many ways? Um, in a lot of ways, I wanted to be more liberated I think, than what I was given growing up uh, as far as philosophies around gender and religion and economic class as well. So I came to it at an early age, but I wouldn't say that I really knew in depth what I was getting into. But later in university, I met someone who was like a communist organizer and I went with her to a meeting. And that's how I started getting really involved in like, how do we make revolution and understanding more about different ideas uh, within the United States, not just in history, like I had been reading about, but our current material conditions and how to affect them. I remember being 13 and saying, I'm a communist. And then the backlash from the adults included questions like, well, why don't you say socialist? That sounds better. <laughs> and um, things like that. I think I was discouraged. I was discouraged from an early age, but I, I came around again. I think a lot of people have journeys like that where it's it can be a long process and it can be overwhelming at times even. It's also important to talk about how none of us started knowing all of this stuff and all of us are still learning every day. So true. So um, how has the reservation system acted as a form of, of ecological warfare or terrorism against indigenous peoples? Indigenous people of the United States were relegated to reservations with the seemingly good intention to allow us to live our decolonized lives and continue our traditions. However, most indigenous children had already been violated and forcefully integrated via residential schools like my own grandfather. 
capitalism had already been introduced and there was already a disruption in the passing down of skill sets and stories. The land given up, quote unquote, for reservations or reserved, uh, these lands are still affected by the pollution and extinction risks caused by settlers. In fact, settlers purposely exterminated buffalo en masse because of their significance in indigenous survival. So the United States continually abuses and revises reservation allotments. For example, the Dakota Access Pipeline. In theory, indigenous people should have the right to say no to an oil pipeline on their land for any reason, because it's indigenous land, right? But even with protests and physical resistance, the the U.S. and its corporations find the power to override indigenous sovereignty. And the people who live on the reservation must deal with oil spills, destroying the water while not having other options for residents. And their health will decline, birth defects will rise, people will move away, and it will be harder to keep their indigenous culture alive. And this already happened in Tar Creek on Quapaw lands. The federal government of the U.S. overrode indigenous decision-making, declaring individual tribal members incompetent, and then the mining companies leased the land. And when the mining companies left, there was water and air pollution that affected the learning abilities of children and killed all the fish. It is the most toxic place in the United States. It has springs filled with heavy metals that formed where the mines used to be active. And my question is, how can Quapaw children navigate capitalism and go on to affect positive change within this system if they have disabilities from lead poisoning that bar them from entering key institutions? And this lead poisoning happened from being relegated to this reservation and not having many choices as far as residents. And water, the common thread here, is an essential human need. It's not mystical or naive to say we are water and water is us, or that we should protect water as we protect ourselves. The connection between us and water is quite literal, as Scott was saying earlier. However, uh, the infantilization of Native peoples causes the rest of the nation to see these sentiments as quaint instead of as science, and infantilization allows non-Native people to dismiss Indigenous knowledge. So this is how all these ideas of racism, ecology, genocide, and warfare collide. How are uh, coastlines, soil, air, and water affected by the creation of large cities, highways, and new forms of transportation? I I have a bit of a background in um, uh, geology, which uh, filters a bit, I guess, uh, my knowledge base on this. But I know especially for um, our coastlines, uh, we it's actually uh, kind of a byproduct of um, we're we're technically still in what you would call ice ages. Global warming is returning us towards something like what existed before uh, the advent of the ice ages, which themselves, uh, based on my understanding, are largely a byproduct of a lot of um, carbon-hungry rock being brought uh, to the surface due to uh, geological processes. But um, in this regard, um, uh, basically beach dunes, sand dunes, uh, they're actually relatively uh, young geological uh, feature. 
the erosion and buildup of them has been something that's been uh, like very heavily influenced by the development of large coastal cities. Uh, a lot of a lot of cities are, are formed on the coast for convenience of trade and uh, infrastructure. Um, these these dunes uh, they they heavily influence the flow of water. Um, these can often cause issues where you can interfere with normal circulation patterns that can cause uh, pollution to flow to places where it uh, normally would be easy to contain or control, but uh, due to the basically erasure of naturally forming dunes, it becomes evenly distributed. And in some places it can even pocket up in certain places. Um, I know in, in coastal Georgia, they have a huge problem with um, the pig farms there because they're so concentrated. They form these uh, coastal lagoons of pig waste that uh, actually build up gas bubbles and can explode and rain uh, literal pig waste basically on the area around it, spreading disease. Um, kind of ties into uh, basically one of the other impacts, which is you know contaminated waters and uh, dead zones and bays from nutrient dumping as part of our agriculture. Uh, I, I reflect on uh, during the last Summer Olympic Games in Brazil, where uh, the bay was actually tested for being extremely unsafe for like fecal coliform bacteria and viruses associated with human waste. Um, some of the athletes were getting like violently ill from being exposed to that water. And when we, you know, when we think of uh, you know the beaches of Rio, you don't really think of that as being a place that's um, not suitable for human beings. But the water's not great. Um, you also have issues with soil, uh, as Noemi commented. Uh, heavy metals are a huge problem. Um, something I actually work with a lot: uh, concentrations of heavy metals, volatile organic compounds, polychlorinated biphenyls. Um, these saturate a lot of the topsoil, uh, especially in areas that have been uh, settled. Uh, quote unquote, by industrialized societies for a long time, for centuries. Um, it was in the news recently, I think over 100 military bases in the US, they have soils that are saturated with perfluorinated uh, compounds that are associated with cancer and early death. Um, one of the one of the more uh, well-known impacts of these cities is, you know, smog. Um, I mean, also commented too, uh, these, this air pollution is actually one of the um, main uh, things behind uh, diseases like asthma. It can also impair uh, mental development and function, especially in children. Uh, it has very deleterious effects on uh, the elderly. Uh, it can lead to early onset dementia and heart disease in people with uh, weakened immune systems. Um, and as far as uh, highways and form of transportation go, uh, plants and animals, they're, you know, they're effectively cut off from typical uh, migratory pathways they've used for you know, centuries. They're They've learned and they've learned to follow. Um, they're, you know, bisected by railways and highways and the associated fencing. And um, I was even reading a study that attempts to build underpasses underneath the roads to enable the uh, animals to move back and forth. That actually just turned into little death traps. The predators, once they figure it out, they can, they can just set up camp in there and like kill to their heart's content. And um, a lot of predators, uh, they they're not used to being exposed to huge amounts of food so their instincts lead them to simply like kill and store food and um they're when you have that kind of like density of animals passing through it they, they kill more than they need simply because it's it's not a behavior they've had to learn to like regulate um at least for the highways a really obvious solution to this would be just raise the highways up over the ground like put them up over the trees this wouldn't interfere with the wildlife beneath but um, unfortunately, that, that ties into a lot of uh, urban sprawl type issues where a lot of people want to have a, uh, a big big chunk of land for their McMansion right next to the identical McMansion, which 
slowly encroaches on um, wildlife. We used to call this conspicuous consumption. You're wanting more just to have more. All all that that extra land could be growing food to to sustain that community right there. It could be more efficient living space so that people aren't forced out. So what are the major design or planning flaws of most uh, industrialized Western cities and uh, what are some ways to address them? I, I would argue the uh, primary flaw is that they're you know, completely unsustainable. They they rely on massive inputs of materials and energy from um, originally what was termed like the hinterlands, the uh, surrounding uh, non-urban areas. Although uh, now in the modern world, effectively the entire developing world uh, has become the hinterlands for these these large urban areas. Uh, this is due to like dirt cheap shipping costs and massive wealth inequalities, which like enables the sort of uh, predatory behavior of resources. Um, a starting point for addressing some of these problems, uh, at least from a mechanical standpoint, ignoring the, the social uh, dimensions, would be um, to grow simply more food inside the cities. Uh, Japan's been experimenting uh, in Tokyo with vertical farming towers. Uh, they're actually pretty easy to automate, and you can grow large volumes of food on a small amount of space, at least um, from the ground level, because you can build up. Um, they're very. We should also become more proficient at capturing and cleaning precipitation and runoff for uh, recycling. Um, cities, you know, already basically breathe on a large scale due to their heat and moisture content compared to the land around them. Uh, it would be wise for civilization to harness the energy and output of your own actions instead of just letting it, you know, waste. Um, you're already producing a lot of um, and attracting a lot of and capturing a lot of water and producing a lot of energy. It, it just seems you know kind of foolish to let that go to waste when it's it's readily there. Um, the second flaw is of course uh, many many large cities are you know they're not really planned on the whole. Uh, they grow organically over time with differing planning strategies across different administrations in response to differing population growth and industrial trends. So it's it's sort of like just sort of. Uh, having a, a wall collapse and you're trying to like hold up piece by piece as it goes. It's it's not really like a well thought out process. It's just sort of like going with it and seeing what you can do. Um, I mean, anyone who has to drive to survive in a city like, you know, Orlando, for instance, or uh, New York or Los Angeles, you can readily tell you that these urban centers, they're, they're not even remotely designed around people. And, and the argument could be made they're designed around cars, but uh, they don't particularly seem well designed around cars either. So. Um, I, I think we need to just design cities to be like human first, um, design them to be compact energy-wise and resource-wise, uh, try to capture what you use. Um, I've seen designs for buildings, that uh, skyscrapers, that actually harness the vibrations caused by people walking around inside the building itself. They capture it and the wind slowly vibrating the building at the higher heights and uh, using that to power the building slightly and capturing all the water that falls on the property in order to uses drinking water. Um, those are the sorts of uh, moves we should be making for cities to be more like sustainable. Excellent. Right. I remember uh, mm-hmm. we would we would of, often talk about how ridiculous it is that we live in the sunshine state and solar is so hard to get here. Oh, yes, solar is. Uh, I, I see significantly more solar farms up here in the uh, <laughs> the northeast than I ever did in Florida, and it's cloudy out today it's cloudy out yesterday it's been cloudy out for months (laughs) and there's more solar up here (laughs) hey who needs solar when you have that good old 
fashion gasoline products. <laughs> Which uh, segues into our next question. What did the advent of nuclear energy and nuclear weapons bring to socio-ecological equation? Well, I would say arguably the biggest thing brought forward by nuclear energy weapons is a very immediate notion that we can uh, quite readily render huge swaths of the Earth effectively uninhabitable, <laughs> uh, at least from a popular opinion perspective. Nuclear energy offers a lot of energy input with minimal moving parts over long periods of time. Um, that said, I, I do wonder at times if like, you know, the risks involved in the raw power, um, if, you know, people can, at least in our current uh, cultural mindsets here, uh, can be trusted with it. Um, the waste materials can't simply be dumped or buried. They need to be sequestered for inordinately long periods of time. Um, there's lots of issues, especially on um, indigenous people's reservations, uh, people basically just being dumped there. And some of this material is going to be dangerous for uh, millions of years, which, I mean, if you reflect on the fact that, like, Agriculture is only about 10,000 years old, kind of uh, says a lot. What is the reliability like for the nuclear arsenal and energy reactions for the U.S.? I'm, I'm not exactly like an expert on um, uh, nuclear power as far as like security goes, uh, that kind of thing. But I do like to um, reflect on uh, November 1979, the uh, NORAD incident, where I know they had a faulty computer signal led NORAD into uh, basically detecting 2,200 missiles being launched by the Soviet Union at the United States, uh, which uh, didn't actually happen. It was just caused by a computer glitch. Um, American operations had about five minutes to decide if they should retaliate or not. Um, Nuclear-armed bombers were basically on the tarmac ready to lift off. Um, they had opted to not go ahead with uh, basically destroying the planet. Um, so that, that's, that's interesting to think about how close we've been um, basically just poisoning the earth wow that um also kind of reminds me of that uh, incident with the uh, warning system in hawaii when oh, yeah. The, yeah. the uh the warning system said that like missiles had been launched and and everyone panicked because it like didn't have any any sort of like this is a test attached to it yeah, I think I think I read like some technician like clicked the wrong button or something. <laughs> Just ridiculous. <laughs> like, yeah. What? This is this is horrendous. <laughs> yeah. Typical cool Friday night. <laughs> so, how has the internet affected uh, carbon emissions, and how green is going paperless? Well, I know as of uh, 2018, um, internet data centers alone globally they have a comparable carbon footprint to the entire air travel industry and that includes like the manufacturing and fueling aspects um one that's a little, a little heavy to think about um luckily uh the internet ignoring the components required to manufacture servers and computers and smartphones uh, for a moment it, it simply rely on electricity and as such uh this footprint's uh, more readily addressed than a lot of other uh, carbon footprints in other industries um but that said, the actual physical components often require special uh, metals and rare earth minerals and plastics. Uh, this complicates the equation a bit. Um, I've been reading recently about some attempts to mine rare earth minerals from uh, other mine tillings. So, um, you know, perhaps there's there's some front on that. But the uh, rare earth mineral industry alone is responsible for uh, a lot of horrors uh, on the global scale. What are some <laughs> clever or not so clever ways capitalists have tried to rebrand themselves as green or good for the environment. 
I'm, I'm sure we all have uh, some examples, but um, I think I think you see something a lot as uh, sustainable food brands in particular. Um, once they hit a, a certain size, they tend to be purchased by large conglomerates to try to rehabilitate their image. Um, one one product I see a lot in stores is Fairlife Milk, uh, which is owned by Coca-Cola, <laughs> like a soda company also just makes milk um, for some reason. Uh, basically try to make it seem like the company is like offsetting in some way the uh, less less desirable and socially responsible behaviors by like almost wearing um, like having a little puppet, something that's uh, more respectable. Um, it kind of reminds me of uh, packaging in supermarkets, trying to advertise. So everything is like healthy by highlighting like a nutrient you get from the food, like you have, like processed sausage wrapped in a pancake on a stick. And it's like now with like nine grams of protein, see it's healthy kind of thing. Um, green marketing in general often just tries to like placate deep seated fears that like wanton consumption has a cost uh, that people have. But by like offering, if you just, you know, consume this mindlessly instead, your carbon footprint is smaller at least kind of thing, which um, you can you know, get into debates about. <laughs> so would you describe uh, the overfishing problem from the 19th century through the 21st century and its main causes and side effects? Um, sure. Uh, uh, I know for um, for starters, like our ability to accurately estimate and track fish stock populations, is it's relatively young, but um, we've, we've known overfishing has been a problem um, for centuries. Uh, the first, one of the first wake-up calls was uh, whale populations collapsing uh, in the 1800s, um, they had been heavily reduced by the demand for blubber. Uh, whales have very long life cycles, and they don't they don't tend to have many calves, uh, so they're they're not a species that can exactly like rebound quickly from um, being fished on and then uh, backed off. Which already it's kind of strange using the I guess verb fish for something that's a mammal, but um, it, it's actually something that's uh, pertinent. To, uh, my area up here is one of the industries that helped fuel. Uh, the early colonies in the Northeast uh, was whaling, uh, using the blubber for uh, uh, oil for lamps. Um, fish stocks had been noticed to be dwindling by midway through the 1900s. I know herring and Atlantic cod and uh, Californian sardines were almost brought to extinction. Basically, with the ocean, though, an uh, another aspect is uh, just like land ecosystems, uh, sudden swings in populations of specific species can destabilize entire ecosystems. But uh, oceanic ecosystems are uh, less understood than land-based ones for obvious reasons relating to how much harder it is to research them, being that we're uh, land animals ourselves. It's kind of difficult with the scales involved in the hostile environment, being able to stand in a forest and count birds compared to having to be suspended hundreds of meters under the water where you don't even know if the fish are going to be there. Um, the, the reach of these ecosystems is much larger. Uh, since since the high water mark of um, fish stocks in the, the mid-1900s, though, um, fishing operations have been producing smaller and smaller catches. And uh, I've seen UN estimates that uh, if we keep fishing the way we are now, uh, most global fish stocks will collapse by 2050. There are, there are scientists now saying that 80% of all vertebrates on Earth are currently going th uh, through some some level of uh, decline due to our continued exploitation of the planet. I mean, they, they, they call it the sixth great extinction event. It's yeah. almost like as if everything the capitalist gazes its eyes upon dwindles and dies. Basically. Yeah. 
there's there's this tendency for people within the imperialist nations to put the onus of responsibility on the third world and the fourth world and that's that's really based in the sort of malthusian analysis that that maintains the capitalist system and isn't critical of um power dynamics and an example of this is is how 71 percent of uh, all air pollution is the direct result of the operations of just 100 corporations. What would you say are the primary concerns of Marxist or indigenous ecologists for the 21st century? The environment question is a global question. And we on the left have no choice but to believe the UN when it says that we have barely more than a decade to fix things. All the evidence is there, like you were talking about, as far as extinction, etc. We're up against incredibly bad propaganda. Uh, we're told that individual efforts don't matter at all. Or we're also told that uh, what corporations are doing is insignificant. Uh, we also are told that fighting for the environment is some kind of cliche, naive, white, hippie endeavor, uh, that climate change isn't real, and that extinction of plants and animals is just another cost of doing business. And the indigenous peoples across the world are usually branded eco-terrorists for protecting land, especially the communist indigenous people of Davao. Uh, we on the left must concern ourselves with pushing further left and resisting ecological ideas that benefit capitalism. And now is not the time for guilt or defensiveness as the roof on our home is crumbling. What are the most important lessons that we should take from struggles like Standing Rock and, and other water protection battles? Uh, personally, what I'm really hoping for is that people of the African diaspora and indigenous people the world over can begin to see our shared struggle and begin to form a trusted alliance to challenge capitalism. Have we seen anything like this start to take shape? Well, we saw at Standing Rock, there were many people who considered themselves part of the Black Lives Matter movement, traveling to Standing Rock to support people. Uh, that's an example of those early alliances. And many of us pulled together to also support people in Flint and get clean water in the form of water bottles to the city of Flint. Uh, I think that this will become more clear in hindsight. We're still not that far out from the beginning of this effort. Flint, um, that was kind of the tip of the iceberg with these uh, water quality issues. Um, I think I think in the next couple decades, you're gonna see uh, more and more cities suddenly find themselves in this, this same scenario where uh, basically our, our aging infrastructure and uh, lack of concern for you know the public good is um, going to keep taking deleterious effects on on people's health and uh, especially with like lead poisoning there's no there's no real way to like undo the damage that's done by lead exposure especially in children um, so I think these sorts of uh, 
these sorts of struggles, these sorts of uh, movements. Um, I'm going to have to pick up the pace on these sorts of things. Uh, I know the Trump administration in particular has been uh, kind of starting to try to bury uh, attempts to look into more and more cities' water quality, especially uh, here on the East Coast. The EPA itself actually uh, estimates that the total cost of fixing the crumbling water infrastructure over the next 20 years would be approximately $384 billion. But that's over 20 years, and billions more are spent every year on um, maintaining the military-industrial complex. Is there anything you would say is missing from the average leftist or communist uh, discourse and action you've seen or engaged in on the subject of ecology as it relates to settler colonialism and imperialism? Yes, I would say what's missing is true curiosity and investigation into indigenous sciences and philosophy. When U.S., North American, and Filipino natives, for example, do show up in conversation, it is exploitative and cookie-seeking. In my experience, it has been insincere. And what I would like is for non-native leftists to help us indigenous left comrades recruit more indigenous people, make yourselves safe for indigenous people, and let the education go two ways. And uh, the two-way education method is crucial in anti-colonial efforts, which you can read more about in Leslie Marmon Silko's work. I think that many people will find that indigenous comrades will catch on to left ideas faster than non-natives will catch on to indigenous ideas. Yeah, that's all really, really important. And um My hope with our organization is that we can provide that level of safety where all groups that are forced into the margins feel like they can come to us and work with us rather than us telling them what to do or anything that's, that's bourgeois like that. So what does white veganism refer to? Because this is something that we've brought up too, and it it raised a bit of a stink, but it's it's something that that we feel is important to talk about um, because it is problematic. And uh, I was wondering if if you could talk a little bit about why that is. Sure, yeah. And uh, earlier you mentioned a little bit about this chauvinistic finger-pointing of Malthus uh, towards uh, people who are the victims of capitalism. And so I find that white veganism is sort of a related concept. Uh, White veganism refers to a political philosophy espoused by those who otherwise benefit from racism, so much so that they are comfortable using racism and nationalism within their political tactics. They overreach by examining other cultures within the context of their own settler mentality and use white chauvinism to try to enforce their views, much like traditional colonization. 
And this is another reason why I mentioned the two-way education method rather than the one-way education method, because the one-way education method was used, for example, in residential schools, and it does still exist in most public schools in the United States. Uh, but to get back to the subject, these settler vegans, despite espousing animal rights, still treat their pets like objects of conspicuous consumption. Like you had mentioned earlier, Jose, uh, they treat these animals like symbols to display their wealth and their prosperity. Uh, often, I wonder if their crusades are excuses to have a righteous way to lash out at others. And these settler vegan groups, they materially do not challenge settler thinking regarding the concept of ownership and hierarchy within nature and humans. Right. In many indigenous uh, traditions, veganism wasn't wasn't really a thing because all life and, and all of reality is sacred. It's all your cousin. And um, the way vegans approach it is, well, this life form is more similar to me, so I shouldn't eat it. And that's, like you said, playing into this hierarchy of life forms. Right. Uh, what many white vegans lack is the political examination to understand that their movement is a reaction to capitalism. It's a reaction to a industrialized factory kind of farming, whereas people in other cultures, their eating habits and meal plans stem from a different place. And so for, for white vegans to try to control and criticize uh, the cultures of others while neglecting the real uh, source of their movement, which is capitalism, uh, just ends up being frustrating for everyone and ultimately drives people away from a tool, like a boycotting tool that could potentially make some kind of difference. Uh, they just make it so difficult to want to join in. And for people who say that animals have rights, et cetera, et cetera, they sure do enforce a hierarchy uh, among humans with their racism and their nationalism. You also uh, made me think of a couple more things to bring up. One thing is sometimes you'll see this anti-blackness thing where they'll compare lynchings to factory farming and they'll often use images too which makes it worse because this can very seriously affect someone who has experienced racist violence and another thing is they often uh, forget that you know these these traditional diets are probably based on migration and uh, seasonal patterns unlike the farming techniques of uh, settlers you know it, it was it was more harmonious with the natural patterns of, of the land ra rather than, you know, forcing the land to do what you want it to do all year round. So those are two more points that came to mind, and you can elaborate on those if you, if you want. Well, I just agree with you. I agree that the methods are exploitative and their effects can be harmful, uh, insensitive at best, and... There are movements of non-white vegans, uh, and because they don't resort to such exploitative, emotional-type methods, uh, they're 
not associated with veganism as much. White people are associated with veganism. It's very unfortunate um, because we will have a hard time knowing whether or not veganism is an effective tool to incite change when it comes to exploitation of the land in factory farming because white vegans do such a good job of turning people away from the overall boycotts. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, so the next thing I, I wanted to talk about is the, quote, noble savage archetype and um, how it's harmful to indigenous peoples. And I was wondering if you could also speak a bit about representation in general, why it's important, and also what its limits are. So this archetype, the noble savage, is present in films, TV shows, and books, as well as uh, in, unfortunately, activist circles. Some spaces are worse than others. The noble savage archetype is a representation of ideas, not really representing a real group of people. Uh, The ideas represented are about a romantic, primitive, and distilled nature of humankind, uh, free from the corrupting influence of civilization. It erases the fact that real indigenous peoples had civilization and were quite sophisticated despite simple lifestyles and that they had knowledge that can be corroborated with modern science. They have feelings. The noble savage does not express any sort of human, what's considered human emotion. Uh, It's very dehumanizing. And representation of the modern struggle among indigenous people internationally would shed light upon various organizations and causes. It would, however, have its drawbacks as capitalist enterprises do not have the same goals as us and will offer accurate representation as long as it is profitable. So we, uh, indigenous people, are not all as sensational as a sexy Pocahontas figure pining after her white lover, Uh, an image of a Pocahontas who makes political decisions and strategizes would be accurate, more feminist and more satisfying, but ultimately wouldn't restore the political power of indigenous people today. What are the potentials for various alternative sources of energy and what are their pitfalls and limitations? Honestly, like the the big four, um, if you're not including uh, nuclear, as we discussed earlier, uh, alternate sources of energy, um, which could probably be described as uh, ambient energy collection, um, would be solar, wind, geothermal, and uh, wave energy. Um, they, they do have limitations, just as all energy sources do. Um, solar, of course, is um, it's more efficient during the day when you have... Uh, no cloud cover, which can be um, kind of difficult depending on your local climate. Uh, up here in uh, New England, it's it's very cloudy all the time, but uh, we still do rely on solar uh, increasingly. Um, one thing we are expanding here uh, off the coast, they're starting to build more and more wind farms. Um, a lot of times, uh, some of the sites I go to for um, my my work, I, I do. I'm starting to see more and more turbines at industrial sites uh, for wind. Um, wind, of course, is something actually uh, the U.S. could, if you want to, if you want to use the oil equivalent, basically be the Saudi Arabia of, we're called, um, out in the Dakotas, um, 
we we have exposure to some extre- extremely powerful wind currents we could be harnessing um the big the big pitfall for solar and wind honestly is that our energy infrastructure is uh it's pretty anemic uh it's dated um it, it, at this point it's in some places 70 80 even 90 years old um we lose a lot of power trying to move electricity generated in areas where solar and wind are efficient if we were to try to move them to other parts of the country you would start running into issues where you're almost losing to more to the point where it's not even efficient gathering it in the first place um it makes having a system like uh germany for instance where they're able to uh rapidly kind of adapt to conditions to move electricity around the nation as they gather it um where we're not able to do that because our infrastructure uh is, is basically pretty behind the times um geothermal in particular is very interesting um it's it's just it's very limited based on where you are um the the, the earth's crust is uh doesn't doesn't offer the same opportunities for collecting geothermal energy everywhere uh, in places like iceland for instance it's you know very it suddenly becomes very realistic but um somewhere that's not exactly very geologically active like Maybe like the Carolinas or anywhere out here on the East Coast, um, it's, it's not it's not exactly a very realistic option. Um, so that that also kind of deals with the issue regarding like the energy infrastructure, where that's that's a strong local option, um, but it, it it wouldn't work with our current infrastructure for moving electricity very far. Um, wave energy actually is something that's, I've been reading about recently. It's kind of interesting. I know in um in Portugal, uh, I think about 15 years ago, they actually had a uh, pilot program with having turbines off the coast um, and they basically sit on the top of the water and the uh, bobbing of the waves uh, moves the turbine and they just collect energy uh, and bring it onto shore and they've shown to be uh, have like no real impact on the wildlife out that far because they're they're not very big they don't um, have much of a footprint they don't need much infrastructure involved um, so that's something that might be viable for uh, coastal settlements to start relying on energy from because these are these this energy is generated like all four of these forms of energy just from natural processes uh i mean if you want to get down to it like realistically wind is and and wave energy already are a form of solar energy um aside from the energy derived from the core of the earth all the energy on the surface of the earth uh ties back to the sun um if i honestly think uh in a way it's it's kind of you know um very reaffirming of the notion of human beings as being um, just another organism uh, as part of this biosphere to return to taking energy purely from the earth as as plants do um as a lot of early early life did um there's something i guess like beautiful about that to me fascinating so how will the so-called global south be disproportionately destabilized by climate change the uh the global south in general um is uh, relatively been um, historically kind of uh, isolated from um, like basically the the societies that dominate the earth now kind of like originated they've kind of been isolated from it um, which has led to like endemic poverty in Africa and South America and uh, Oceania and uh, Australia and in Africa in particular you're going to have uh, low adaptive capacity to climate change due to this endemic poverty um, um, and this is especially uh, difficult in the face of climate change due to the political instability it can bring. Africa also especially has um, a threat of expanding deserts. Um, you also see this Central Asia where the deserts are growing at basically the fastest rates that we know of um, in recent history. 
this this puts extreme pressure on peoples who had to rely on, for instance, um, farming versus uh, migrating with uh, livestock. They're suddenly competing for the same um, environments because they no longer have the space to sort of coexist, sort of at a comfortable reach. They're they're put on top of each other and forced to try to compete for land, for different lifestyles, and um, the political instability and um, is a kind of increasing population have led to collapsing ecosystems in Africa, which um, kind of ties into biodiversity as being extremely important for adapting to climate change for wildlife. Um, South America in particular, uh, they're going to have issues with uh, large populations there being reliant on glaciers for drinking water in the southern portions of South America. Um, as the glaciers retreat, you're suddenly going to have less and less people um, able to access drinking water as easily as they've been used to. Um, this this puts a lot of pressure on competition for water resources. Um, you're also having, particularly with the uh, the Amazon, uh, as the Amazon's been kind of cut from both directions, both from human activity and as the uh, water in the Caribbean's warming, you're having issues with rains aren't reaching as far inland as they used to. Uh, normally, when the rains would reach the mountains, they as the clouds climbed, they would form precipitation and return water back into the rainforest, but uh, that's not happening. The water's dropping uh, significantly earlier, if you want to call it that, inland. Um, it's not making it all the way to the uh, mountainous inner portions of the continent. Um, this is this is combined with um, intensive agriculture and clearing, leading to replacement of rainforests with savannas. And um, savannas inherently having larger salt content in the soils, um, this makes them more difficult to farm. Um, so it only exacerbates the problem with clear cutting. And then um, as far as, uh, I guess, you want the Pacific uh, Islands and Australia, uh, you're having issues with increased extreme weather patterns. Um, droughts are becoming more common, especially in Australia. And modern infrastructure is often, like electrical infrastructure, for instance, is not able to tolerate these sort of heat and dry conditions for very long. Um, you're having problems with flash floods. Uh, it's kind of what you're starting to see in California, where you have alternating droughts and floods, and it's it's kind of strange to have like extremely dry conditions suddenly broke up by uh, aggregate amount of rain you normally would have gotten distributed. Only now it's in bursts where it can't be collected and it leads to mudslides and just washes away human settlements, um, destroys local ecosystems. And especially in the Pacific, you're seeing problems with collapsing coral reefs. I'd also like to add that um, as conflicts sort of heat up, we're also going to see imperialism pick up. We're going to see fascism pick up and the race to extract and secure more for your nation or your private corporation or your super region. And this is going to lead to increased exploitation, which is going to further destabilize the region. What is the ecological significance of coral bleaching in ocean acidification? Uh, well, uh, coral bleaching preference occurs when uh, water temperatures are too high for coral. Um, this, this causes the coral to eject algae uh, from within its body structure. Uh, th this algae is basically helpful for the coral to bring in uh, more like usable calories. Um, by, by ejecting the algae, the coral doesn't, doesn't die outright, but th this adds stress to the organism and increases the risk of mortality. Um, and basically just this is like a slow process of just making things harder and harder um and for the coral and you start to see the decline of the reef itself and um the reefs function basically like a hybrid between 
guess you want to call it like a rainforest and like a gas station almost uh, for, for ocean life. Um, lot, huge numbers of marine life make their lives in close proximity to reefs and rely on them uh, completely. They, they, they never leave the reef. They live within it. Um, there, there are whole classes of life also that visit them occasionally. Uh, they range in a large area around the reef and return to it um, for shelter, for food. And then you have um, large amounts of marine life that are migratory, and they uh, they often visit these as uh, places to find shelter for a while, find food for a while, uh, to navigate. Um, basically, by uh, destroying these, you're disrupting these ecosystems, which uh, adds into the problem we're having with overfishing. Um, it's just applying more pressure to these uh, complicated ecosystems we already don't really understand because the, it's 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 one thing to study a forest that's it's located. Um, I don't want to say like two-dimensionally because different uh, life forms exist at different heights within the forest. Like, but um, this is you can have waters that's like thousands of feet deep, and different life forms exist within like different depths at different times of the day and different life cycles, and they they move thousands of miles uh, throughout their lives. Um, it, it's something we don't really understand, and we're seeing rapid, uh, dangerous changes occurring. Although I, I will say I have seen. Um, Research with uh, we're 3D printing uh, coral polyps actually, which is uh, extremely interesting. Um, that, that could be something we could start moving towards. I know uh, some countries have already been taking uh, concrete structures or old ships and effectively sinking them and uh, seeding them with coral uh, already to begin with, sort of like try to jumpstart them, kind uh, of move them further north and south, depending on which hemisphere you're in, into colder water so they can survive. Um, Ocean acidification is uh, honestly one of the, from uh, my experience, uh, most worrying and uh, severe uh, threats, I guess you would call it, um, impacts of climate change. Uh, as, as more carbon dioxide gets put into the atmosphere, the oceans absorb more of it. The oceans are a large sink for this. Uh, and as the oceans become more acidic, uh, certain forms of algae are no longer able to form protective shells around themselves. Uh, and they, they they die because they can't survive just open exposure to ocean water. They need they need that that thin carbonate shell, and uh, without the carbonate shell, they're they're simply not a viable life form. And a lot of these life forms actually form uh, the bulk of photosynthetic life on the Earth. They they make up more photosynthetic biomass than all of the forests on the surface, and that's not even counting um, for humans clear cutting it. Even before we clear cut a lot of the forests, they they were likely a larger bulk. Um, so seeing a collapse in that would be um, a more serious problem than clear cutting most of the surface of the earth. That's the scale of that is, is uh, worrying to put it mildly. Um, that there have been discussions about possibly uh, genetically engineering them to be more uh, resistant towards ocean acidification. Um, you also see uh, issues with, uh, for instance, this, this ties into uh, overfishing, but um, Jellyfish, for instance, are better able to tolerate acidic ocean water than uh, most fish are. And so you're starting to see, um, for instance, in the Sea of Japan, um, where it used to be heavily fished by both China and Japan, but as populations have exploded and they've cleared the fish and the water's become more acidic, it's been like a golden age for jellyfish. And you can even just go on YouTube and find videos of uh, fishermen out in the Sea of Japan and the water is pure it, it's jellyfish like the top 30 feet of the water column around the boat it doesn't even look like they're in water it looks like it's a a boat in a giant sea of, of jellyfish and that that's going to have profound impacts on the the food web
that's some apocalyptic stuff we're dealing with. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> I was about to say that jellyfish image sounds like some end times biblical stuff. In a way, it's a uh, return to operations as normal for uh, the Earth. The Earth's much of its history has been much warmer than this and dominated by invertebrates. Um, so it, it's, I mean, it's bad for us, but <laughs> I'm, I'm sure certain invertebrates will... Uh, win big if we don't do much to alter these. Episode two, Rise of the Invertebrates. <laughs> so, <laughs> what are some harmful carbon cycles that have been set into motion as a result of climate change? Well, as, as I discussed uh, earlier, um, your, every single desert on the surface of the planet Earth is expanding right now. Um, there, there isn't a single one that's in retreat. Uh, there, normally, you would expect them to ebb and flow over time, but they're all just uh, in advance. And um, that's, that's going to start marginalizing areas that humans can survive in, um, that other organisms and ecosystems can survive in. It puts pressure on the types of ecosystems you see that exist on the, the fringes of deserts. Um, to tie in earlier, we were also talking about ocean acidification, which is a direct result of uh, increased carbon dioxide production. Um, another another, bi another big one is uh, permafrost. You're starting to see that melt, and that's starting to release a lot of uh, carbon and greenhouse gases on its own um, throughout primarily the northern hemisphere, as the southern hemisphere has like significantly less uh, land above water level in it. Um, you're starting to see these in like Siberia and Canada. The soil is just basically turning into soup and like leaching gases that have been trapped for thousands of years into the atmosphere, um, which of course is sure. exacerbates the rate. Uh, the, the single, I don't know if it's, <laughs> I, I would argue it's probably not like the most dire one, but the one that always captured my imagination the most in kind of a, a dark way is uh, the methane clathrate uh, on the bottom of the Arctic Ocean. Um, methane, when it's applied to really cold temperatures and high pressures, forms uh, something akin to ice called clathrate. There's a lot of this in the deep Arctic, and um, this stuff is starting to basically, as the water warms up, uh, it, there's a process where as the water warms, it becomes less dense. So it expands a bit, um, which helps. But overall, the impact from the warming is the more the methane clathrate is melting and it, it, it sublimates directly into a gas and starts uh, percolating up through the water column. And once this hits the atmosphere, uh, methane is an extremely uh, effective greenhouse gas, significantly more effective and carbon dioxide, actually, uh, one of the great extinctions in uh, Earth's history, the uh, basically the extinction that led to the Triassic period and the the rise of the uh, dinosaurs, uh, you know, all that, those cool animals we studied as kids and stuff. They um, that was caused in part by uh, methane clathrate release. The uh, within a few thousand years, so much methane was released that it reached a critical point where within a few decades, uh, almost all of it was reached from the bottom of the sea. And our current models, if they're accurate, showed um, much of the atmosphere on the northern uh, portion of the northern half, as we call it, of the planet uh, would have been some going through a process akin to effectively boiling. Um, it wiped out 90% of life on the planet. Um, basically, if you were alive and you required air to breathe, which is basically complex life, um, your lungs and lung equivalents would have pretty much been seared and uh, boiled by uh, the extreme uh, changes happening because of the methane. Uh, it's extremely intense to read about. Yeah, that definitely doesn't sound like a fun day at the spa. It's, it's, uh, re it's referred to as the methane clathrate gun hypothesis in research. 
Yeah, I remember reading a bit about uh, the melting of the ice in the Kara Ocean and the releasing of the methane gas being a major uh, factor in the uh, recent polar vortex that swept through the Midwest. I'm, I'm curious, do you have any comment on the recent uh, polar vortex? Um, well, you're, you're going to start seeing uh, more freak weather storms become the norm. Um, we've been there. There's some arguments and thought that like the only reason uh, civilizations as we really understand them got going in the first place because we've been in a Goldilocks zone of incredibly uh, stable conditions for a while now. Um, last hundred thousand years or so have been um, bizarrely stable. Um, we're going to start seeing the return of large storms. Um, Earth throughout much of its history has had massive storms. Uh, they're just the natural state of things. Um, we've just been very lucky. Uh, we're going to need to adapt to them. It's just going to become a factor, even if we were to basically completely repurpose society towards uh, addressing like ecological and environmental changes. These these processes are so large in scale that it's going to take centuries of change. So we're going to need to learn to live with these things. It's going to require massive changes to infrastructure. Um, honestly, there's parts of the world where it's going to be one of those like you you have to accept that this is life that these, these storms occur or choose not to live there. Uh, could you describe the importance of biological diversity and why poaching big game is so dangerous to the stability of an ecosystem? More uh, biologically diverse ecosystems are better able to handle changes in ecological regimes, which they're natural. Um, you, this is just a part of natural processes as you have um, you have grasslands slowly turn into forests. Forests fade out and form grasslands. Uh, waters migrate, rivers migrate, wetlands migrate. Um, you're constantly having change. And the more biological diversity within a system, the better life is able to adapt to it, um, which is going to be extremely pertinent moving forward, as I was just discussing the uh, increased risk of erratic climate patterns that are um, basically guaranteed at this point. Uh, it's kind of like for nature, it's like having a full toolbox kind of evolutionary speaking compared to just a hammer and a saw like you can you can solve more problems and uh, adapt to changes more easily with more diversity uh, you have each each life form has sort of a series of possibilities as far as like genetics that it has um, and some of those adaptations are more likely to be beneficial towards surviving um, if you if you simply have more of them it's kind of a numbers game in a simplistic way, um, and are moving big game in particular. Uh, this often causes cascading effects, as uh, these organisms tend to have proportionally outsized ecological footprints. Uh, for instance, removing a large predator species, as humans um, have done fairly frequently throughout our history, uh, this opens up problems for like large and small prey. As large prey suddenly has no limits on their growth, um, they just consume everything, uh, drive themselves into overeating, starvation, and risk potential population collapse before reapproaching something akin to uh, stability. And uh, smaller prey can have issues where middle-sized and smaller predators, which are formerly kept in check by large ones, are now free to completely devastate these smaller animals' populations. Um, these sorts of instabilities uh, nature can, can operate around. Um, it will adapt to you. The only issue, of course, is, uh, you know, um, whether or not like humans will be able to weather the change. Um, we're, we're not quite, we're, we're reliant on uh, very stable environments. Um, sedentary lifestyles require them. So causing all these like erratic changes to occur is kind of like rolling the dice um, constantly. Just hoping it keeps working out in your balance. Um, nature operates in dynamic balances. And, you know, while these changes are natural and inevitable, um, sudden changes are 
just always difficult to adapt to. Um, a lot of times they lead to extinction. The, this is the process that leads to most wide-scale extinction events are simply caused by sudden rapid change that most living things just couldn't adapt to. So it's, it's kind of irresponsible basically just to be like forcing this dynamic over and over and over again when like, you know, you've got skin in the game, so to speak. Interesting. So what exactly are the effects of microplastics on organisms? And what happens as they work their way up the food chain? Um, well, uh, microplastics, the study in the field, is it's relatively young. Um, I, I've, uh, I, I do, my work has to a lot to do with uh, geochemistry and uh, groundwater quality. Um, and you're starting to see this stuff start to filter into um, my, my uh, uh, purview of work. Um, I know in the last like, couple of decades, we've only started to really gain an idea of what's going on. Um, Basically, you know, you can have micro microbeads are the commonly known origin point of these, but uh, microplastics are often caused just by the breakdown of normal plastics. Um, plastic takes, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years to break down, and um, it's not always just chemical erosion. Like physical erosion happens to these and just grinds them into little bits that migrate through waters and soils. Um, accumulation in tissues, in at least humans, as far as we know, leads to cancers cardiovascular disease, regular uh, irregularities with hormone and enzyme production. Uh, microplastics are difficult and expensive to filter from water. Um, and not only that, it's not even simple where it's like they're all coming from one source. Think of every single water fixture in your home and then think of every single home around yours and realize that every single one of these is a potential vector into the water uh, system. And that's just from like the human controlled water system. You can have just trash on the side of the street that it's broken down slowly and percolates into the soil where it can stay for decades before it even gets reintroduced into the water. Um, it's, it's already difficult enough to follow natural sedimentary particles as they wind through rivers and to seas and land formations over eons. And um, these are these are brand new and we don't quite understand how they're going to interact. Um, one thing I always uh, reflect on that, that blows my mind uh, when I was learning about how like the EPA works, for instance, and the FDA. Um, when we part of the reason why it's it's so difficult to form bans on chemicals that we find to be uh, dangerous, and this is something I encounter in uh, my work a lot, is a lot of times um, you take chemical A and chemical B and you put them in the ground, and they may not necessarily be dangerous themselves, but they interact with one another and they can form a dangerous daughter chemical. Is especially um, pertinent because conditions under the ground change in terms of like oxygen and uh, reductive capabilities, uh, pH, temperature, pressure, even these even these physical properties can alter what sort of chemical reactions occur. Um, basically like playing in a, in a giant chemistry set, only like we live in it. I'm going to start a metal band called Dangerous Daughter Chemical. <laughs> I like it. That's I'd love to cut. We can talk about climate change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of uh, human history is uh, learning from mistakes, which is only natural because that's, that's kind of how you learn, you know, just when you start wielding kind of powers uh, modern industrial society does, it's the mistakes are a lot bigger. The question is, what we, what do we do once we acknowledge the mistake, which mm -hmm. is where we're seeming to struggle the most? Mm -hmm. So I'd like to thank you both for coming on our show, and it, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I'd like to think I and uh, Jose and our audience have learned a lot, and I, we hope you have a, a great time. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Do either of you have a project that you're working on or 
um, anything that that you want to um, to refer us to as far as uh, following you or supporting what what you do? Uh, yes, as you mentioned earlier in my introduction, I do have a political education platform called Hot Kami. H-O-T-C-O-M-M-I-E, and I am a Marxist 101 political educator for The Forge, which is a socialist news source. Thank you. And uh, I don't I don't particularly have anything to uh, plug. I just wanted to you know, thank you for uh, doing what you do.